Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd with me, Barbara Drew. Today, I'm sitting down with Philip Mulan, our quality and authentication manager, to discuss wine fraud, perfect storage, and how wines change as they age. Philip, welcome. We are absolutely delighted that you um, could join us today, and I'm Thanks, really Bob. looking forward to what should be a very interesting conversation. Excellent, thank you. Let's start by telling us a little bit about your background in the wine trade. Where did you start? How did you get to where you are today? It's really unimaginative, I'm afraid. It started straight out of university a long time ago. I can't even think back that far. So straight out of university, needed a job, and I saw an advert for some sort of trainee manager, I think, at Majestic Wine. This is a route that I think that a lot of people in the wine trade have have sort of taken into the trade. I thought, that's great, I'll do that. You know, I had an interest in wine before I started anyway. And I thought, well, I can do that for a couple of years and pay off my overdraft and and, and student loans and things, and then I'll get a real job. (laughs) And I just loved it and stuck with Majestic for a few years and then um, was lucky to get a job working for Berry Brothers in in the Basingstoke shop, actually, at the time, 26 years ago. And that's it. I've remained at Berry's all that time. And do you have any plans to get a real job anytime soon? No, I'm very happy, actually, with my current... Role. Thanks for asking. It's strange that the wine trade kind of grabs you, I think, and um, it's very hard to think of doing something else now. I couldn't even begin to imagine what it's like in the real world. <laughs> I agree. So tell us, what does your current role encompass? Quality and authentication. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, it's mostly, if I'm honest, probably 85% quality and 15% authentication, I would say. The authentication is the bit that I think intrigues people the most. But fundamentally, my job is is to make sure that everything that we sell, particularly on the fine wine side of the business, so the older and the rarer wines, are as good as they possibly can be, and certainly that they are good enough for us to sell. And the slightly more unusual side, the authentication side, crops up when very rarely we come across something that we're not too sure about, and we need to dig a little bit deeper just to make sure that it is what it says it is on the label. So that sounds really intriguing. Tell me more, digging a bit deeper to find out whether it is what it says it is. How do you go about doing that? First and foremost, I should say that it's pretty rare that we come across fake wine. And it's saying, is the case original? Does the case look right for its age? I think fundamentally, particularly when you're talking about older wines, one of the key things is establishing that everything looks correct for its age. So starting with the case, then moving on to the main label, the capsule is enormously important, the integrity and the quality of the capsule. Does the glass look right for its age if it's a particularly old bottle? Essentially, you've ruled out any potential problems and then we can say, no, we're happy that that's correct and it is as it should be. The term wine fraud crops up a lot. Can you give us perhaps a brief overview of the history of wine fraud? What is fraudulent wine as a starting point? So fraudulent wine, fake wine, if you like, has been around since before Roman times. It's not a new thing. There are written examples of wine being faked in Roman times, in Phoenician times. And I think essentially, wherever you have a fermented or a distilled product, beverage, there will be somebody somewhere trying to sell you a fake version of whatever it is you're supposed to be. Whether it was beer with a lower alcohol volume, whether it was whiskey or gin with a lower alcohol volume, or that was watered down, that could all be construed as being fake booze. And then obviously we work on the wine side of things, and for as long as men and women have been making wine, so it has been faked by somebody else trying to make a profit on that. So as I say, it's not a new thing. And it is, I think, certainly at our end of the spectrum in terms of value and prestige, it's a pretty rare thing. But the trouble is that 
that the more you go up in price and prestige and value, the bigger the potential pitfalls. And that, that's where I come in and my, and my assistant Sebastian comes in, in in terms of trying to protect ourselves as a business and our customers from coming a cropper. Now, I know, Philip, that you are a model of discretion and try as we might over the years, we've tried to get all sorts of interesting stories out of you about fake wine or interesting bottles that you might have come across. Is there anything you can reveal to our listeners about some of the ways that fraudsters have perhaps attempted to fool you or the wine trade in general in the past? Of course. I need to be slightly circumspect in terms of naming names of certain wines, but you can imagine the sort of names that do crop up, which are occasionally, which we do find that are counterfeit. However, I think the most common way of faking wine is it's done on different scales and it's done it's in some cases it's, it's very much of a, a garage sort of uh, industry and at other ends of the scale there are people faking wines on, on a very very large scale you know thousands and thousands of cases we're at the, the cottage industry type level i think in the fine wine trade and generally speaking it'll be somebody trying to either refill empty bottles so a genuine bottle with a genuine label which is then refilled and they'll recork it and capsule it and either insert that bottle into a case of otherwise genuine wine or they'll make up entire cases of wines again which have been refilled and they'll find their way onto the market somehow there are tried and tested routes for fraudsters about how they get their wines onto the marketplace so that's probably the most common way is where somebody's either refilling a bottle or perhaps in some cases buying a cheaper wine from a known producer or a certain grower with a good name and they'll buy the cheapest wine they can from that grower so they have the original cases and they have the original capsules and and corks and then they'll soak off the label and they'll Mm. put their own fake label on for a more expensive cuvee or a more expensive vineyard so correct grower correct vintage potentially but with an entirely wrong label it's another way that they try and get away with it at the wholesale end at the industrial side of things that there are known instances of, of there being literally a bottling line in a winery in certain parts of the world and the fraudsters will have an industrial bottling line of perfectly poseable wine perfectly drinkable wine being labeled up as something that it's not costing them maybe two euros a bottle and they're selling it for maybe I don't know, eight to 10 euros a bottle, sometimes more. Uh, But that's the sort of the side of the business that we tend not to really see that much. That's really interesting because I think that there is a perception that fake wine is only a problem with the very best Grand Cru's or the smallest, most exclusive producers. But, you know, ultimately it is anything that is not what it says it is. Absolutely. It could be fake vodka brands, gin brands, whiskey brands have all, all had issues with counterfeiting over the years and are almost certainly are still doing so now. All of the big whiskey brands will have somebody doing my job, I suppose, but from a whiskey side of things, trying to prevent fraudsters around the world from faking their products. And some of the big wine names, again, I don't want to be casting aspersions, but some of the big wine names, Australian wine names I'm thinking of in particular, have had huge problems being faked in China. You know, it's taken them years and years to track down the ringleaders and, and actually in that only recently, having had problems for years and years, one particular Australian producer finally managed to shut down its big Chinese faking competition, if that's the right expression. You know, and it's cost them millions and millions of dollars to sort it out. Perhaps a sign of their success, imitation is the uh, Not, yeah. highest form of flattery. Flattery, exactly. I know lots of people say that. I, I think, yeah, lovely to have your brand as well known that somebody would want to fake it, but equally the damage that it can do to your reputation as a brand is, is huge, and I think they'd much rather not have the fakes in circulation, I think. There's also the issue of public safety as well, so you don't know what 
necessarily is going to be in that fake bottle of wine. And, and certainly in the spirits world, they have problems with, you know, industrial strength alcohol going into fake spirits and things. And, and there's nothing to say that, you know, your bottles of wine could be contaminated as well. So the public health concerns are paramount if you have a particularly huge brand. One of the questions that I get asked quite a lot is, does it matter if you're drinking something and you're enjoying it and you think, gosh, this, you know, this does taste like a, a top Grand Cru Burgundy. Does it matter if it's not what it says it is? But I think there are many reasons why it really, really does matter, health being one of them. Uh, absolutely. I think it's actually quite rare that we get to a open up a bottle of fake wine I think very often because they don't necessarily belong to us most of the fake wines that we've found as a business over the years have belonged to customers who are sending them into us for long-term storage and you know we've been inspecting them just to make sure they're okay and we come across a potential problem and so when the wine lands in our warehouse or our cellars it doesn't belong to us so we can alert the customer and say I'm terribly sorry we think there's something wrong with this but very rarely do we get to write it off and open it which is possibly a good thing. I mean, that said, there's really good evidence to suggest that some of the really high-end fakes are actually a very good drink. And some of the, the best-known counterfeiters of our era, if you like, the two names that I can think of, uh, Rodenstock and Kernioil, I mean, they produced really, really good quality fakes in many instances. They had, you know, Rudy Kernioil had a recipe for 45 Mouton on the table when he was arrested, and it had good wine in it. You know, his, his blend for 45 Mouton was prodigious in terms of its quality, so... There we go. You mentioned that a large part of your role involves fine wine quality. Hmm. We've looked at the authentication. Tell me a bit more about assessing the quality of what comes into our warehouses. Right. So customers increasingly expect their fine wine to look absolutely pristine. Historically, that wasn't the case. And when I certainly, when I first started working in the fine wine department, my job was to rummage around in, in old cellars and things and pull out old bottles of Tor or Mouton or, or whatever it may have been. And it wasn't a problem if the labels were damp and half falling off and half of the vintage was missing. As long as you could prove essentially what the bottle was, there was still a market for that. The, the key thing was that it, the wine had been well cellared, not that it looked in pristine condition. Now, increasingly, with the monetization, I suppose, of fine wine, people expect their fine wine to look immaculate. So there's no room anymore in the business for cardboard cases which are damp, for cardboard cases which have been kicked by a warehouseman and dented. Taking the lid off an original case, it's got to be done carefully so you don't split the lid and so on. All little things, but if you're talking about wines which are hugely expensive now, even a mid-range case of claret might be sort of seven, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand pounds a case, people expect it to look pristine. I think that's not an unreasonable expectation. Expectation exists because people want to potentially resell it. Not all the time, but you know, we exist as wine merchants to sell wine for people to drink. However, in case anyone ever wants to, to potentially sell that on, we have to make sure that everything that we might be selling on looks absolutely pristine. I think it's the same for, you know, for many things that people collect. I mean, it could be the same for shoes and exquisite trainers. Up until the point that you decide to take them out of the box and wear them, you want to make sure that they are absolutely beautiful mm. and kept in perfect condition. Yes, and, you're right, actually. Um, well, toys as well as toys have got to have their original boxes. Exactly. And, and, and the more pristine Dinky the boxes. toys somewhere yeah. up in the attic yeah. for the older generation. I'd never actually, I'd never thought of it in relation to other collectibles, but you're right. We have to look 
first and foremost at where the wine has come from. Has it been properly stored? Does it have some sort of provenance slash paper trail with it that we can verify so we know it hasn't been sold from an off-license somewhere and, and sent across Europe in an unrefrigerated container? That sort of thing. So we have to know that wine has been professionally stored before it comes to us and properly stored in a, in a, in a decent temperature-controlled environment. And then it's got to look right. So the cases have to be pristine, the capsules have to be unblemished, the labels particularly have to be unblemished. And it's not that we can't sell wines which have a nick out of the label or a you know a slightly scrunched capsule or something they still have a value but we have to note it in some cases it may not affect the value but equally it may i think people expect to pay a fraction less for a case that's been damaged or a, a label that's got a damp mark on it or what have you you mentioned shipping of wine personally a subject i find fascinating i appreciate it's maybe not to everyone's taste but uh, you mentioned refrigerated containers which can be very important if you're transporting particularly quite fragile wines through warmer seasons or in warmer climates. Slightly leading question for you. How much bad wine is simply bad storage or bad transport, in your opinion? I couldn't put a figure on it, but I think there's a really good question. Like, as I say, I can't put a figure on it. Percentage would be quite high. I think there's a lot of wine out there which not necessarily coming into us because we are pretty rigorous about checking that where our wine comes from there is a provenance trail for it and that the wine has been well stored in some cases we have temperature control traceability on our on the cases that are coming into us as well so not in everything but certainly some producers use that and, and it's something that we check so i like to think that it's not really an issue for us so much however i think there is a lot of wine out there which hasn't been properly stored and properly looked after and does affect the quality uh, something that's been across the and, and back potentially without being properly shipped and you know without proper care taken it will have been heat affected to some degree it might not write it off as a drink but it'll dampen the flavors it'll dampen the aromas and everything becomes more muted and that's a best case scenario so i think it's a good question i, I think it's really hard to put a figure hmm. on it though i do want to explore storage and how wines age a little bit more i asked you to bring along a bottle in fact i, I very clearly specified one bottle and you came along with two so that will be i can't apologize anymore i feel that i was entirely valid in this in this instance bringing a bottle and a half. I thought it'd be fun to compare two wines from the same vintage, the same commune in Bordeaux, same vintage, they're not a million miles apart geographically, and didn't bring the best vintage. We could have gone for 2005 or 2000. I went for 2004, Barbara, honestly. What more do you want? <laughs> Fantastic. So we've got a bottle of 2004 Chateau du Tertre from Margot in Bordeaux. Another interesting point that you raised, you said, I really want some mature Bordeaux. And then you added a comment at the end, you said, properly mature and nice and savoury. So tell me, what did you mean by that? So I'm afraid my tastes are quite traditional when it comes to what I drink. I drink a lot of mostly claret, in fact. And it's not that I don't appreciate wine from elsewhere. It's just there's not enough time left in my life potentially to worry about it. I know what I like and I'm going to stick to drinking it. Thanks very much. So Bordeaux's always been my thing. It's the most easy to understand of the French vineyard areas, if you like. It's the, the 1855 classification writes it all down in black and white for you if, you if you want. It's such a good starting place for people to learn about proper wine. Bordeaux because it's been written about over and over again and it is genuinely it's all codified for you it's pretty you know, all you've got to do is memorize it so for somebody like me who doesn't have uh, a huge amount of brain power necessarily uh, Bordeaux is a really good starting point and it's also I know people might take issue with this but it is absolutely convinced it's 
tremendously good value, particularly nowadays when you look at the price of a red burgundy. I honestly think that some of the best value wines in the world come from red Bordeaux. Certainly they're some of the best vineyards in the world. So I drink a lot of red Bordeaux. It's what I drink most of. It's where I feel most comfortable. It was just a natural choice for me, really. I think that Bordeaux is best with, you know, at a certain level, you need 10 years for a decent Bordeaux to start strutting at stuff to any real degree. Because of the sort of stuff that we sell is so popular and there's such a big market for it worldwide, even a company like Berry Brothers and Rudd with huge cellar reserves, we don't have necessarily wide stocks of what I would classify as being mature wine that's ready to drink. We, we have them. We don't necessarily open them all the time. And I just like my claret with a bit more bottle age. I like the flavours to have ameliorated so that you don't necessarily have primary fruit. I like there to be some fruit, but I don't necessarily need primary fruit. And I like the tannins to have softened a little and for everything to be a bit more harmonious and a bit more balanced, which is what age, properly aged wine should have. Do you think that given changing climates and changing winemaking practices, there is less need to age fine wines these days? Or do you think that by drinking your wine younger, even if it's made in a more approachable style, are you missing out on something? No, I do. you do have a hugely valid point. The days when you had to lay down claret for or red Bordeaux for 30 years before it was ready to drink, are, are, I think are a thing of the past. Even the very best chateau are made in a much more consumer-friendly style, generally speaking with much greater generosity of fruit and better balanced tannins because winemaking has come on in leaps and bounds in the last 20 years. And so and so, there is definitely a case for saying that you can drink your wine younger. There is no doubt about it. Doesn't mean to say that there's any harm in hanging on to it for a few years, though. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely. So 2004, Chateau du Tertre. Just getting on for 20 years old here. So not super, super old, but really in its prime, you would say, Philip. Well, I hope so. So I picked a wine also that it's not it's not hugely expensive, Chateau du Terch, but it's, I think, genuinely really good value for customers. But I also partly chose it because it is one of the more forward Chateau that we sell. And I think partly because of the blend partly because where it lies in Bordeaux it's terroir Chateau de Search always drinks a little bit younger I'm curious to see to be honest because we've got a half bottle of Chateau Brand Cantonac here to follow up with just to see how that goes in theory Brand Cantonac should be a little bit more backward it's got more Cabernet Sauvignon in it it is technically finer terroir and it should outlast the Chateau de Search but it's a half bottle so it will be interesting to see if the half bottle's matured a bit earlier, a bit sooner. Absolutely, yes. For our listeners, bottle size does make a difference to how a wine ages and how quickly it ages. Now, if you're looking at five years, even 10 years, the size of the bottle won't have a huge impact. But the further out you age your wine, um, the longer into the race that your bottle is, shall we say, the greater divergence there will be between smaller and larger bottles. And the smaller the bottle, the more rapidly your wine will age, which is why large formats are such a brilliant option for laying down, for christenings, you know, godchildren, or just if you're looking to keep a wine for more than a decade or two. Personally, I think a magnum is a perfect size. I don't, you know, double magnums and bigger are fine and great for, you know, for large gatherings. I don't know enough people that I like to invite, you know, to ever get get through enough, uh, or that like me, to ever get through a double magnum or more. But magnums are just the perfect size. So this wine we've got here, the 2004 Chateau de really, really interesting. And actually um, what you're saying, Philip, about wanting to have some fruit there, but also starting to get what we call the tertiary characters coming through. There's a lovely ripe 
black current character that's still very, very obvious on the nose, but then all of these beautiful sort of leathery, what the French call it sous-bois, and it sounds incredibly poetic, and in English we call it wet soil, which is a little bit less poetic, but (laughs) just as factually correct. I really think that's showing well. It's exactly as I would have hoped. I had the 2001 of this a few months ago. The cellar with us hadn't moved, you know, and and the 2001 is a slightly more generous vintage, I would say, and that, that was fully mature. I would say that there's a little bit of structure in the 2004, which means it's got a little bit of grip left. Duterte isn't the most structured Margot there is. It has quite a lot of Merlot in it, relatively speaking, and Cabernet Franc. I think it's just drinking perfectly now. That it has, it's, it's, it is, as you say, it's developing those more savoury characters. It has a sort of a cedariness to it, which I love in, in maturing claret. There is a, a warmth of ripe fruit, a white, ripe black fruit, but there's a savoury gentleness on the palate which I just love and it's really just perfect with food honestly I mean some of our listeners they might be wondering what is the value of leaving a bottle of wine um, for 20 years before you drink it and I mean the excitement on Philip's face now the aromas in this wine really quite incredible when it's young you get this beautiful fruitiness but it's only as the wine ages that all of this complexity reveals itself and you end up with a wine with a very silky texture as well I think there is a perception that red Bordeaux can be quite a heavy wine, quite full-bodied, and you need really robust food to go with it. But actually, this wine, there's a real charm there, um, a real elegance, and I think at a push, you could probably enjoy it on its own. But failing that, perhaps just with a light plate of cheese, it certainly doesn't need a huge amount um, just to help balance those, um, those glorious flavours and aromas. They really do take time to to reveal themselves. Yeah, and, and for the wine really just to, to ameliorate and, and you know, for the tannins and the acid to come into balance properly. Duterte, when it's young, can be quite noticeably oaky as well, and it's not it's lost its, its sort of primary oakiness as well. It's, um, it's I think it has. There's still a bit of wood there, but just enough to give it a bit of gloss, I think, on the nose. But it's perfumed, and it's it's typically Margot, I think. Yeah, very, very noticeably Margot. So this is from 2004, which is it's one of those years that's described as a classic vintage which I'm not sure is a particularly helpful term if you know lots about wine then of course you know what a classic vintage means and if you don't then it really doesn't illuminate anything for you Uh, a classic vintage is wine merchant speak for claret that you can lay down probably because it's it was a slightly cool vintage and it needs a bit more time for the tannins to soften so I think 2004 in many ways marks a bit of a watershed in terms of red Bordeaux production I think is the last affordable vintage if you're anyone like me that's been in the trade for some time and it was you know the release prices were genuinely cheap compared to those in 2005 and from 2005 things took an inexorable turn upwards and and never came back down again the release price of Chateau de Terch now is probably almost double I would have thought what it was in 2004 that's one of the advantages incidentally of buying it when it's when it's young is you know you you should save yourself a few quid over time not only does it mark does 2004 make a mark a watershed in terms of Bordeaux pricing but it's also arguably the last of the slightly more old-fashioned vintages, I would say, I think come 2005, which was a really good, rich, ripe, but also structured vintage. It's almost as if all Chateau and Bordeaux took a real step upwards in terms of quality of wine production. And I think 2004 is the last vintage where you get a little hint of what Bordeaux used to be like, and, and the wines are a little bit more 
structured, a little bit more cedary, a little bit more lead pencil as opposed to very pure focused fruit. It's all in this bottle, in my opinion anyway. Classic vintage is wine merchant speak for a wine you're going to have to hang on to for a few more years, <laughs> as opposed to something like a 2019 or 2009 would be, would be probably the best example actually of a vintage which is super ripe super generous and you know just ready to go almost from the outset 2004 always needed a bit more time to, sh to show its stuff super shall we compare with our half bottle of Brancantinac hmm. see how that has progressed over the same time period hmm that's really quite I could smell it when I poured it quite lovely it's much much more focused isn't it We've opened up our 2004 Chateau Brancantonac, so we are still in Margot. Same vintage, slightly cooler vintage, um, and as you're explaining, probably needs a little bit of time, you know, around 20 years should be sufficient to start to show it, its true personality. But interestingly, from a half bottle here, so in theory should have aged a little bit more rapidly than a full-size bottle, and the Chateau are 1855 classification. They sit in two different tiers. So Dutertre is a fifth growth and Chateau Brancantonac is a second growth. As we know, that's not the be all and end all, but do you want to tell us a little bit more about sort of the differences between the two styles that we've got here? So the, the 1855 classification is not infallible. There are chateaux which have been classed as fifth growth in 1855, which definitely outperform their classification. Equally, there are chateaux that were classed as second growth in 1855 and do not, in my opinion, live up to their classification. But in this case, I think Dutertre and Brancantonac are at the right level in terms of their classification. I think Dutertre sits quite a long way inland compared to Brancantonac, inland from the Gironde. Dutertre itself means a little hill, a Dutertre is a little hill, and it sits on, a, on two small hills surrounded by its own vineyard, one of the largest blocks of, of single vineyard, if you like, uh, in, Bo in Bordeaux, actually, or in the Medoc. The soil is not the deepest gravel. Cabernet Sauvignon, as we know, performs best on really deep gravel soils, and, and it's, Dutertre doesn't have really deep gravel soils. It's quite a bit of sand. It results in a wine which is slightly lighter in style. There's a little bit more Merlot planted in the vineyard than there is in, say, Brown Cantonac. It's fifth growth terroir, is what I'm trying to say, I suppose, politely. The wines of Dutertre are slightly lighter than Brown Cantonac and, and, and a little bit more forwards, perhaps. If you look at the colour of the two wines, I think it's noticeable. Despite it being in a half bottle, I think the Brown Cantonac is noticeably slightly darker, slightly less evolved on the rim. And I think that's because Brown Cantonac fundamentally has better Cabernet Sauvignon terroir. It sits on a really beautiful plateau of gravel, the Cantonac plateau, with very, very deep, 10, 12 metre deep gravel vineyards with a particularly fine block of Cabernet Sauvignon in front of the chateau. And it's it's truly world-class terroir for, for Cabernet Sauvignon, which is, I think, the vineyard's planted to something like 60% Cabernet Sauvignon, whereas Dutertre, I think, is under 50. So much more Cabernet Sauvignon in this. And it kind of shows, it shows in the quality of the Cabernet fruit on the nose. It's very, very pure, much more pure cassis than the Dutertre. And I haven't tasted it yet, but I'll have a quick taste and see how we go. It's curious. I mean, it seems younger than the Dutertre. Ultimately, it's going to have a longer race to run. So it's only, you know, a third of the way through its race so far, which is really quite um, quite astonishing. That's a remarkable nick for a half bottle, I think. It's really, really good. I'm really pleased with that. I honestly think it 
demonstrates the, the difference in terroir between the two properties. So much more density of Cabernet fruit on the, on the palette as well. It's cleaner, it's more focused and linear in terms of its black fruit characteristics. It's also got more tension and more detail on the palate there's more yeah. persistent yeah. it's longer it's finer and it's just a better wine um, you are forgiven for choosing two bottles of wine when i asked for one i really hope that that showed up i really do think that they display quite quite good characteristics you know they're both margot they're both quintessentially perfumed and stylish medox but they are very different terroirs yeah really 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 interesting comparison and um, it's said that there's no such thing as a good wine there's only a good bottle of wine and to get these two bottles showing so beautifully today you know each bottle has had to go through sort of a tricky 20-year journey it's had to dodge all of the obstacles that might befall it terrible transport poor storage what are the most important things in your opinion that have meant these wines are showing so well today? Uh, without a doubt, really, just want of being moved, really. They, they've been shipped directly from the Chateau immediately after they were released, and they've been in Berry Brothers and Rudd storage ever since. And that cool, quiet, impeccably temperature-controlled environment is just the perfect way to bring up your wine, if you like, in terms of uh, raising it from being an infant bottle of claret to, to opening it 20 years later. It's, what great wine needs is long, cool even cellar temperatures and that's what you get at the end of it guarantee if you had both of these same wines at the chateau where they'd never moved they'd taste even better you mm. know that i don't think there's any doubt that wines in situ always taste better just because they've been made upstairs they're moved downstairs and there they sit and they never move until they're opened and they're just glorious i think and but this is as good as it can get from our point of view there's only us as the middleman and that's that's the result you genuinely can taste that in the glass. I mean, ultimately, wine doesn't like to be messed about with um, too much and leaving it alone until you are ready to drink it is generally I good had, advice. I bought some red Bordeaux recently from another purveyor of red Bordeaux, Outrageous. who I won't name. And I think it has been doing the rounds. It wasn't old, particularly. It was mid, uh, so, say 2016, so really not that old at all, but uh, only Cru Bourgeois. And I'm sure it hasn't been properly treated. It's mm. just, there's so much variability in the case, and I don't think it's the wine. I'm sure it hasn't been properly cellared. So uh, that's a lesson to me. That's very interesting. Mm. Time to maybe hear about... Any differences between what you preach and what you practice? How do you store your wines at home, Philip? The answer is not impeccably, which is why I leave them at work for as long as I possibly can. And I have learned a few lessons along the way, actually. I have learned that whilst we preach good cellar temperatures, you don't need to worry too much if you don't have a Eurocarve at home or you don't have some form of temperature-controlled storage at home. There are a couple of golden rules you really need to follow, I think. And for me, that's temperature is important. What's even more important is even temperature, so lack of fluctuation. To take an extreme example, the worst place in the world to store your wine for any length of time is the kitchen. House designers, kitchen designers that put a wine rack in the kitchen should all be shot because uh, it's just horrific. <laughs> you want to stay away from any room where there's a you know a continual fluctuation in temperature, essentially. So honestly mean that. It, it, it's the worst thing in the world for wine. So keep away from f- fluctuating temperatures. Obviously, hot water pipes and radiators are a no-no. You know, you don't need a special cellar, but you do need a, a sort of a dark room that remains an even temperature year-round or as even as possible. So a north-facing wall or a cool spare bedroom or a study that you know nobody or people rarely go into no direct sunlight obviously these are for if you don't have some form of special cellaring and and then if you do have an even room temperature type 
situation at home, your wines will be fine for a few years. They're not going to suddenly go off. I think I'm talking here particularly, I think about red wines, wines that, that benefit from cellaring. Be careful with your whites and be careful with your champagnes in particular. Really leave those in professional storage for as long as you can and then don't hang on to them when you get them home. Drink those fairly swiftly unless you've got proper cellar or, or a Eurocoff. That would be my first thing. I have learned that I kept wines in not, not ideal storage situations in my garage. I used to have a, an old outdoor loo that I used to store my wine in for a long time, which was north facing, didn't get very much sun. It was fantastic. It wasn't temperature controlled, but it was just, it turned out to be a really good uh, place to store my wine actually. And over a period of time, I think wine definitely evolves quicker when it's not perfectly stored. There's no doubt about that. I've seen that myself in my own, you know, my own wines. But a wine that may have taken 10 years to come round could well be more drinkable in sort of five or six or six or seven. That's my personal findings. I think it just higher temperature hastens evolution. It doesn't necessarily ruin the wine straight away. Big fluctuations though are a no-no. Finally, what one wine in your cellar are you most looking forward to withdrawing at some point in the future? There's no one wine. This is the sort of question that people that don't work in the wine trade ask you quite regularly and and it's impossible to answer, I think. if Having said that I drink almost exclusively claret, I do drink other things, and there are times when something else is the right thing to, to open. It all comes down to the day, the people you're going to be opening the bottle with. There's no one bottle that I can think of. I, I could. I did have a bottle years ago. I had a bottle of a very expensive red burgundy. It didn't have a label on it, and I bought it quite cheaply. <laughs> I'm so pleased I opened it when I did. I opened it one New Year's Eve and I had my parents over and my father loved a good bottle of wine and I'm so pleased I opened it when I did. And I've been looking forward to it and looking forward to it, never knowing quite what it was going to be until I pulled the cork. It was only when I pulled the cork and I knew what it was. It was 1969 and it was one of the most famous vineyards in the world and it was utterly extraordinary. And so my one bottle that I've always looked forward to opening, I opened 10 years ago and it's gone, it's done and dusted. You know, having a bottle that you're saving because you're looking forward to it so much and then you never get around to drinking it, that's the sad thing. So that's the, that story's got a happy ending because it got... I, I think I think so. Without being morose, I wanted my father to taste it. He was in the peak of physical health at the time. My mother wasn't, which is kind of what sort of hastened my decision, I suppose. And I kind of, I want I wanted to have a really nice bottle that years because my mother wasn't very well. And I just wanted to share it with somebody who would get it and and it was just the right place the right time and it was absolutely unbelievable i'll never forget it so there we go that's my bottle already gone and done and dusted i think that's the best the best bottle isn't it the bottle that's empty but it's been shared with the it was so good company yeah no it is actually i think i think fundamentally wine is all about it's all about drinking it and but it's who you drink it with you might want to drink it on your own that might be the perfect moment but it's who you share your wine with i think that's the key and that's what makes it I really do think that. And the, the time and the place is important, but it's enjoying it with people that also appreciate it. I, think. I absolutely agree. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse the producers mentioned in today's podcast, visit bbr.com slash podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your own fine wine collection with Berry Brothers and Rudd, All the information you need can be found on bbr.com slash collecting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. I'm off to add some Brancantanac to my cellar. Cheers.